Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. Welcome to Tell Me Everything. I'm John Fugelsang, and I'm so excited to welcome you to a special hour of programming dedicated to Black History Month. And I'm honored our first guest is Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, the first Somali-American and first naturalized citizen of African birth to serve in the U.S. Congress. We did this interview a couple of days after she was thrown off of the powerful House Foreign Affairs Committee. I think you'll find it very inspiring. And then something different for a Black History Month special. We've done specials with authors and historians and activists, but never authors of a book about black horror movies, and you won't believe how culturally relevant and political it is. It's called The Black Guy Dies First, Black Horror Cinema from Fodder to Oscar. We're thrilled to be joined by its authors, Dr. Robin R. Means Coleman and Mark H. Harris to trace the history from stereotypical trope characters to Jordan Peele redefining black horror. It's a fascinating book, and I'm so glad you're here with us. Let's begin now with Representative Ilhan Omar. Ilhan Omar represents Minnesota's 5th District in the U.S. House of Representatives. She has made history as the first Somali-American to serve in the U.S. House and the first woman of color to represent Minnesota in that chamber. She and her family famously fled the Somali Civil War as refugees and eventually made their way to America. In spite of the bullying she endured as a child, and endures to this day, she has devoted herself to public service and defending the dignity of marginalized peoples. Her commitment to human rights and social justice has led to her condemnation by right-wing fundamentalist Christians here in the States, right-wing fundamentalist Israelis, and right-wing fundamentalist Iranians and Saudis, sometimes for the same comments. Following a performative act of stunt bullying by Kevin McCarthy, removing her from the House Foreign Affairs Committee, she has recently been appointed to the House Budget Committee. It is a great pleasure to welcome Congresswoman. Ilhan Omar. No, thank you for having me, John. Thank you so much for joining us, Congresswoman. It is a great pleasure. Um, I want to begin by asking what you thought of the State of the Union address and the attendant uh, noise that was there. I-, I felt that Joe Biden was going to use the occasion to really pivot to the center, and it seems like he he was still going for more FDR territory. I'm wondering what your initial thoughts were on the speech. Yeah, I thought I thought the speech was uh, really good. Um, I think one of the best State of the Union speeches I got to um, be in attendance for since my time in in Congress. Granted, I got there when Trump was president, <laughs> um, so, so so the bar was you know pretty low. Um, but uh, the one thing I really enjoyed was when he was talking about. Um, police brutality, um, sort of centering the conversation around um, the, you know, the talk that we all talk about um, as as parents in the black community. 
making sure that he was humanizing that conversation uh, and calling for accountability and justice to be carried out equally uh, in, in our country. I thought that was a powerful moment. I myself had a guest to the state of the union that had his son killed um, doing a botched uh, no-knock warrant. Uh, Andre Amir Locke Sr. was the father, uh, is the father of Amir Locke, who was killed last year by Minneapolis police um, in, in my district, a beautiful 22-year-old who's no longer with us. And uh, as, as far as the, the hackling goes, I, I think it brings chaos and embarrassment um, to to an institution that, you know, is, is obviously not just not just holds a, a reverence for those of us who are living in the United States, but it also holds reverence for folks around the world um, and to diminish it and have uh, sitting representatives of of a district in in the United States calling the president of the United States, the leader of the free world, uh, a liar is really embarrassing. Indeed. Um, I think on a political level, the contrast of tones between the two parties was well served by the behaviors of both sides in that address the other evening. You mentioned, of course, Joe Biden's powerful comments on police brutality. Are you at all hopeful for any kind of progress over the next couple of years? I must say, many more people know the term qualified immunity and why it should be ended now than knew that term three years ago. It tells me at least awareness is rising. But are you hopeful? I, I am hopeful. I mean, the the fact that we were able to to see a shift um, in in the policies that the president um, addressed uh, at the State of the Union is because people have been calling for those policies, and and obviously public sentiment has has shifted, which has allowed for a president that was proudly centrist to now speak to the nation as as a progressive, uh, and I think that over time, things like qualified immunity, uh, really addressing the core issues that lead to police brutality um, will eventually, I I think we will eventually make progress there uh, and hopefully have laws that that reflect the kind of care uh, and safety that we wanna have in our communities. Congresswoman, I've made no secret of my admiration for your public service in the face of discrimination and for the stances you've taken as a person of faith. I, I have this I have this theory that I talk about on stage and on the air that religious fundamentalism is sort of its own religion, that the extreme far right Christians, Muslims and Jews have more in common with each other than with the moderate or progressive uh, Christians, Muslims and Jews. And when you came out and said that a Hague based court was important for prosecuting crimes committed by both sides in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It was amazing to me to see both the Israeli ambassador and Iranian state media taking you on at the same time. To me, Congresswoman, that's a sure sign that you're doing the Lord's work and speaking for the majority of people of faith who are deeply put off by fundamentalists staining religion as we know it. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think when, you know, um, the 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 these people are are sort of considered authorities of our shared Abrahamic faiths. It sort of pastorizes uh, what what the core values of it are. Um, I think that for me, I was raised to to think uh, of of my faith as one that is 
uh, internal, uh, one that um, is about the self-betterment uh, of, of yourself and of humanity, um, and one that is uh, supposed to make you uh, a person that is more caring and compassionate. Uh, and so when I see people use faith as a weapon to control, to wield power, to to damage the the dignity and humanity of of others you know i i feel that it is important for for all of us to stand together against it well as the child of a, an ex-nun and an ex-franciscan brother i i thank you for that for using your faith not as a prop to wave around and claim some kind of piety but for actually following the faith and devoting yourself to public service i, I i've heard that you first became interested in politics when you were interpreting for your grandfather at a DFL caucus when you were 14. Is that true? Yeah, uh, my my grandfather was a lover of democracy. Um, and, uh, you know, he was born in uh, Somalia. Um, he spent most of his um, earlier years uh, in colonized Somalia, uh, was part of um, young people who who believed they should be independent, and once the country was free from colonization, um, was really excited to cast a ballot. Uh, and Somalia became the first uh, recognized democracy um, in on the continent of Africa, and uh, that was short lived. Um, a, a dictator took over. Uh, and, you know, my my grandfather <laughs> held on to the hope that he would someday be able uh, to participate in a democratic society and have his voice be heard. So when we came to the United States um, and he heard about uh, uh, this caucus process that was happening um, not that far from our house, he wanted to attend that gathering. And I ended up going with him. He obviously understood and knew more uh, about democracy and um, its workings uh, than I did, but he didn't have the language to be able to fully participate. So um, interpreting for him uh, was was both an honor and, and something that sat in me. So my my work since then has been to make the, the, the process in, in Minnesota um, one that people can participate. So we made it really accessible. There's multiple languages. Um, and I'm proud to report back now, you know, when my grandfather and I attended, we were the only two Somali, the only two people of color that were um, in that caucus room. Uh, and the last caucus that was held there, I think, over 300 um, people were there and 90% of them were um, either Somali or the minority communities that live in, in that neighborhood. You know, learning about how your father and your grandfather were resisting um, the more fundamentalist elements as, as religious moderates, I think, is a real insight into your career of public service. I have admired your struggle for Medicare for All and student loan debt forgiveness. I'd like to ask you about a, a bill you've co-sponsored that I think is the sort of thing that I wish every American could know about, and that is the No Shame at School Act, which I just want to broadcast this to the entire world. For those who have not yet heard of, of it, how would you describe it and what inspired you to co-sponsor the No Shame at School Act? Yeah, um, we have uh, schools across the country um, where parents and children are carrying debts 
because they didn't have enough money or resources to be able to provide a school lunch to their children. Uh, I think that is a horrendous um, act uh, that that's been um, committed uh, really in in our country. You know, I, I obviously grew up poor. Um, you know, when I came to to the country as as a refugee, uh, we we struggled for many years. Um, and you know, I was on the, the free and reduced school meals program, and I I understand how important somebody who also has experience severe hunger, I know how that creates limitations for a child's brain to to develop, for them to have critical thinking, um, and for them to even have regular patients in the classroom um, to be able to learn. So I always say you got to feed the belly before you try to feed the brain when it comes to our children. And so making sure that we are able to clear this debt is, is really important. So families are living with that stress. But also we have to move away um, from the current system that we have and provide universal school meals. I think every child in this country deserves uh, to, to be able to have uh, a meal and a nutritious one at that. And that's why I admire your work, or as my mother would call it, your ministry. In the face of all the discrimination you have faced, you have consistently been fighting for all Americans. And I thank you for your service. I know you have to run and time is tight, but it's a great honor to have you with us. I can't wait to see. I can what, also uh, say, please. yeah, in, in regards to uh, feeding children during the Trump administration, when COVID hit, I passed uh, a bill called the Meals Act. Uh, and it has now provided um, meals to 22 million children uh, across the country and uh, through through waivers. And those have expired. And we've been fighting here in, in Congress to try to um, uh, expand uh, those those waivers. So those that are listening, please call your member of Congress and tell them to support our efforts to try to feed every child in this country, because in one of the wealthiest countries in the world, no child should be hungry in our schools and not learning. Well, I know you have to run, Congresswoman. I thank you very much for your time, and we hope to have you back. Ilhan Omar represents Minnesota's 5th District in the U.S. House of Representatives. We'll be right back. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. So it's not often I get to interview authors of a book that deals with race and racism, uh, history and injustice, politics, and cinema, horror, comedy, representation, 
all at the same time. But the first great book of the year on American culture has just been released. And the good news is you don't have to be a horror fan to marvel and appreciate the work. It's also rare that a book of cultural analysis and systemic injustice is dare I say this much fun to read. Our next guests have done that, and I'm so excited to speak with them. Dr. Robin R. Means Coleman is Northwestern's Vice President and Associate Provost for Diversity and Inclusion. She's the author of the classic horror noir, Blacks in American Horror Films from the 1890s to present, as well as African-American viewers in the black situation comedy, Situating Racial Humor. Mark Harris is someone I bet you guys have read for years like me. He's an entertainment journalist who's written about cinema and culture for over 20 years for New York Magazine, for Vulture, Rotten Tomatoes. He created the website blackhorrormovies.com in 2005. It is the premium online source chronicling the history of black representation in the genre of horror. And together, they have collaborated on a work that explores the tropes and traits in black horror cinema from 1968 to modern day. And in doing so, they really trace over half a century evolution of American culture. And the title references one of the most infamous tropes in horror. It's called The Black Guy Dies First. Black Horror Cinema, From Fodder to Oscar. It is a great pleasure to welcome Dr. Robin R. Means Coleman and Mark Harris to SiriusXM. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. I want to tell you, before we even begin, how much this book means to me. I was eight years old when I first watched William Crane's Blackula by myself on my parents' TV on the middle of a Saturday afternoon, <laughs> and it blew my mind and still does to this day with its audacity and creativity. And years later in high school, uh, I won an acting competition at a university that was judged by Dwayne Jones, star of George Romero's <laughs> Night of the Living Dead. I met him when I was 16, and I couldn't believe it. And he was an acting teacher, and all I wanted Yes, wanted to do was talk about right. how powerful a symbol he was mm-hmm. in a film that was seemingly trying to pretend it wasn't a powerful symbol. I, I, I want to begin by by saying, Dr. Coleman, I know that film is featured so prominently in your work, but what was it that drew both of you into the world of horror? For me, I you know, this I talk about it as an origin story. So I was born and raised in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And for true horror heads, I need not say more because we know (laughs) that's where George Romero filmed in and around Pittsburgh, Night of the Living Dead. So Dwayne Jones, my first crush, um, right, Uh, (laughs) is, is, you know, I sort of describe it as my birthright. And watching Night of the Living Dead was so powerful for a Pittsburgher. First, because Romero casted real life Pittsburghers. Bill Cardill, Chili Billy, was Mm -hmm. uh, a news reporter in that film. And so the ways in which Night of the Living Dead plays out and in subsequent movies, you're saying that's that's my real life lived experience in a lot of ways, which sounds funny because it's a zombie film and they're eating intros. But (laughs) that notwithstanding... (laughs) You really do. There's a realism to that film that captured the imagination of Pittsburghers like me. Mm. Mr. Harris. Yeah. Yeah. And and I'm proof positive that of the universality of that movie, because I have no ties to Pittsburgh whatsoever. And yet I still cite Night of the Living Dead as, you know, my entry into the horror. Uh, That's I remember watching it. I rented a, a VHS copy from the library you know, back when I was probably 12 or so. And I remember watching it and just being fascinated by this movie that seemed, it was a black and white and it seemed so ancient to me. And yet it had this black character who was the lead, who was the leading this group of, of white people through this zombie uh, 
uprising and he was slapping white women around. He, was, he shot a white guy. I mean, he was the the last living person standing in the house uh, until his unfortunate demise at the end. But um, it just really struck me as really something revolutionary, you know, even though it was before my time. And, you know, it, it really struck a chord with me and, 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 and made me fall in love with the horror and, and the possibility of the, of the genre. Me as well. And it was amazing that at the time it seemed just shockingly just incidental to the plot that the protagonist was a black man. And, you know, the middle-aged white guy, I had relatives like him, the the stupid bigot character who, <laughs> who does get pushed around. And yet Dwayne Jones is the one who rises and is the one person leading these survivors. And yet Romero always claimed that the film had nothing to do with race, which I, I, I've struggled with over the years. And both of you touch on that in the book. For me, um, I'll, I'll jump in and I appreciate Romero's claim and it has evolved. It did evolve over the years, sort of the story around his colorblind casting. And I've often said that actually that's less important than what Dwayne Jones ultimately brought to the screen, which was his, you know, kind of whole full self as a black man. And it was it was something that we read, we interpreted in that situation. So while there may have been colorblind casting, we, we don't know, there certainly wasn't a colorblind performance, right? A Correct. reading as an audience of what was happening on that screen. That powerful ending reads differently. It hits yes. differently, right? Because it's a black man and because it's a white militia, you and can't, it's not zombies you who can't kill erase him. that. It's exactly, not the zombies who right? kill him. Exactly. It's, it's, it's the carceral state, right? It's an indictment of that. It's an indictment on, on policing. It's indictment on police murders. And so that is brought to bear in a way that I think is important and it should not be erased under the sort of message of colorblind casting. I was just going to add that, you know, I think Romero kind of intended the movie to, as a whole, the the visceral uh, graphic nature of the movie to kind of represent the times you know the turbulence of the times whether it be the vietnam war or the uh, race protests that sort of thing i think but you know as a representation of the times you can't remove race from the situation in america so i think whether he intended it or not race was there and it comes through in the movie. I, I've heard Romero over the years say that he didn't intend it to be political, but when one watches the sequel, Night of the Living Dead, uh, I mean, uh, Dawn of the Dead, one of the most political and deeply satirical horror films ever released, it's hard not to think that he had a social agenda with the casting of Dwayne Jones as Ben. Yeah, I mean, it's hard for me to think so too. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, on some level, I think in the back of the mind, his mind, he had to have known it. But, you know, one thing we touch upon in the book is that one of the ultimate white privileges is the privilege of obliviousness when it comes to race. So, I mean, he think, you know, he might very well have, you know, not consciously thought, you know, I'm making a statement when it comes to race. I'm just going to cast a black person and just, you know, it's just a black guy. It's just any other character. But I think his privilege is that it doesn't necessarily mean that much to him, but I think in the totality of 
American society, race is, you know, you can't avoid race from, from anything, exactly. really. So I think it's something that comes through to the viewers, definitely. I mean, his character is a leader. He's the one who has a plan. He's the one who's trying to save everyone. He's the most competent one of all the survivors. And then, yeah, uh, he's killed not by zombies, but ostensibly by a cop's bullet. It is a bit ironic, considering your title, that in that classic, the black guy dies last. But it is a, a deeply political work. And I, it makes me want to ask the question. You refer to the category of, of black horror throughout the book, and it's a book about black horror. I'm wondering how each of you define that term and if you define it in the same ways. Does it have to be directed by a, a, a black director? Is it a black cast? Is it intended for black audiences? What are the guidelines we're using for this book? This kind of is a sister book to uh, Robin's Horror Noir, which I think takes a more scholarly approach to the definition of black horror versus blacks in horror. Um, I think with this book, we are a little more mainstream, a little more broader in our approach to to what we define as black horror so i mean for me for this book we kind of just use black horror as a catch-all for any movie with had that has a, a a black primary character or is directed by a black person or you know written that sort of thing so i think it's kind of this one is more a little more general than than horror noir which kind of breaks things down a little more specifically Dr. Coleman, I mean, I think this book is uh, definitely uh, sort of a, a sister piece to horror noir, as well as to the excellent documentary uh, about horror, of, of horror noir. Was that your intention to expand on that previous work and add some new text to the conversation? It, that's a great question. So let me tell you everything, <laughs> John, which is... Because um, I love the movie, too. <laughs> is today, I would say the intention was to expand but quite early on, I knew that there was something special about partnering, collaborating with Mark on a, horror, a black horror project. I was a huge fan of blackhorrormovies.com. And um, we've told this story often that I infamously or famously, depending on Mark's perspective, found his phone number and called him out of the blue years ago and said, we, we've got to do something. We've got to do something together. And I've often said, I don't think Mark knew me from a can of paint. And mm -hmm. I am so glad that this ultimately happened. Um, so is it an ex was it an, an intentional extension of horror noir? It ultimately became that. But what it was more intentional was a partnership between two people who not only are fans of horror, but are also real sort of scholars of film. And I think we're also really very funny. And so those yes. three came together in a spectacular way. And I would say that there's some black horror is often about, you know, topics of social justice and we get into race. But the Black Guy Dies First is also really very funny. It's deeply funny. That's uh, just as so much great horror cinema has great comedy in it. This film is a deeply funny work. It's probably the only way to talk about such horrific scenes is to keep the comedy ball in the air. You know, I want to talk about the title because The Black Guy Dies First is, is a trope in many cinema uh, genres we grew up with, war movies, certainly. I love the title. What was it that made you go with that title for this work? Well, I mean, I think that that trope is still really the first thing that people think of when they think of black people in horror movies, you know, even with 
successful works like Get Out and Candyman, I think when you talk about a black person in a horror movie, I think their people's minds immediately just go to, oh, they're going to die. So we kind of took that as, you know, kind of a fun, catchy kind of way to, to kick things off. But, you know, we also kind of thought about what that trope means. And really, it means the marginalization of, of the black characters. They're always put into these roles where they're not the hero. They're going to be yep. a sidekick or some other ancillary character who is going to be put in the crosshairs and is probably going to die at some point. So I think we, we use that as kind of a way to talk about, you know, the way that black characters have been treated, have been pushed to the side. And uh, it's a really a, a good, fun way to open the discussion about representation. Absolutely. I mean, we've grown up seeing so many movies where there'll be one token black character who's just dropped in as an incidental thing to be killed <laughs> off. It seems like that really is the distinction between blacks in horror cinema and black horror cinema, isn't it? I mean, you're talking about films where black people are not incidental, where it's real representation and real storytelling. Yeah. And I think, you know, we'll find that typically the more people of color who are behind the scenes in the storytelling, writing the stories, directing, producing, I think they will tend to make sure that the black characters are fully formed human beings who have, you know, uh, hopes and dreams and have, you know, something more to do than to save the white star. They, they might actually be the star. They might be the hero. They, they might be the focus of attention in the story. Exactly. The title of the book is is The Black Guy Dies First, but I don't want to overlook the illustration that comes with that. And that actually was Mark's design. And so there's The Black Guy Dies First, but the illustration is that black power fist coming up out of the ground, which I hope reminds readers that that's not fixed. And exactly. it represents what the book is, is we are not simply imaging imagistic victims these aren't always controlling images but that black people in horror in the horror genre have agency right in a lot of these films and so that fist coming up out of the ground that mark designs it's not we're not dead we're not dead yet in fact the genre is thriving now the black horror renaissance is on because of us exactly and, and it's amazing to be alive at a time when we're seeing cinema reclaim that and the works of Jordan Peele, which we'll get to, but also your work goes to show us how many artists out there were making films reclaiming that and actually telling stories about black characters that spoke to a common shared experience that happened to be hugely entertaining films and were generally off the mainstream cultural radar. We're going to take a very quick break. We'll be right back. This is Progress. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep, the application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs. Just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. 
I'm John Fugel saying this serious XM progress. I'd like to talk to you about one of the ugliest tropes in horror films that persists a bit too much to this day. And that is the character known as the spook, a black character who's supposed to be a token comedic relief who's always frightened, mainly to draw a contrast to the brave white lead characters. I was so glad you tackled this because it's a bit shocking how much we still see this stereotype poking its way into horror films. Yeah, I mean, it, it has evolved over the years, you know, of course, from from the early days with the uh, with actors like Mantan Moreland, who would do the, the feats don't fail me now kind of a uh, shtick. You know, nowadays it's a little more aggressive and, and angry, like, you know, F that I'm not going in there, you know, that sort of thing. So it's it's an interesting trope that I always find interesting because it, it is initially off-putting to me but on the other hand i think about it and i'm like you know that's really what most of us would would say in those situations that's how we would mostly act so you know we wouldn't go towards the the strange noise in the basement that sort of thing so um i think in some ways that character is is sort of the smartest character um but it really kind of depends on how it's portrayed in the film i think you know mm-hmm. In in the days of Mantan Moreland, it was a case of the audience laughing at him. You know, nowadays you can still kind of portray incidents where you're a character is scared. Like in the, in the most recent Candyman, they had a uh, the the lead actress was you know peering down into a dark basement and deciding whether or not to go down there, and she's just like, nope. And she closes the door and walks away. And, you know, in that case, we're not really laughing at her. We're laughing with her because we can put ourselves in her shoes and 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 we can relate to her. And so it's really kind of a really a, a thin line in terms of how the character is portrayed as far as whether, you know, how how offensive it is. On the other side for me, and I love that Mark said that this character has evolved into the smartest character because along this uh, sort of trajectory on the other end is the the least smart character, and that's the sacrificial Negro. Yes. Um, the, uh, the, the other side of the trope uh, of these tropes that we talk about who really are about, you know, sacrificing their lives and then sort of ultimately understanding that blackness itself is up for sacrifice to salvage whiteness. Right. And so yes. it is the Noble sacrifice. Exactly. Jimmy, run, save yourself. I'm going to stand in this in the way of this bullet, this monster, yeah. this rampaging ape. Um, and so I think that there are there's an evolution that Mark is describing. And then there's an unfortunate fixedness about the ways in which blackness is uh, shows up around the sacrificial Negro. Well, that's why I'm so glad you mentioned the scene from the the Candyman remake. I, I've actually wondered if Jordan Peele was inspired by that for the title of his film, Nope, because it seems like the title <laughs> itself is a way of turning that trope on its head, that this in this modern cinema, written by an Academy Award winner for writing black horror cinema, that the hero is the opposite of the spook and completely goes the different direction and is the voice of wisdom. It, it just seems the title itself directly speaks to that stereotype. Yeah. I mean, when I, when I first saw the poster for Nope and uh, you know, I, I didn't know anything. They didn't reveal anything about the plot or anything that I just saw the title and was just like, Oh, okay. He's, he's playing with us. You know, he's, he's, he's playing upon the, you know, black people see danger and they're like, Nope, 
and they, they walk away. <laughs> they're like, <laughs> they're not the typical, not the typical, you know, uh, horror lead who investigates things and, and, and it's like, Oh, is anybody there? Is anybody there? And they yeah. keep, you know, going towards the, the danger. So yeah, I think uh, he definitely yeah. had something in mind. Exactly. I mean, you go through so many of these, these horror stereotypes. You mentioned the sacrificial Negro or, or these heroic deaths or the anonymous deaths. What about the sidekick? That's really a trope that's haunted a lot of black actors throughout the history of horror cinema. Um, I remember Rachel True talking about this in the horror noir documentary where she said, you know, so many roles that she got was as the sidekick role where she just simply get got to say, are you OK? Are you OK? Are you OK? And so I think that really captures the ways in which black people are not only performing as sidekicks, but again, in a different way in service. And in Rachel's case, it was often to white womanhood. And so it was never about the feelings, the histories, the battle, the struggle of these black characters, but really was checking in and making sure that the white characters thrived. Oh. And I think, you know, uh, characters like that and like the, the voice of authority kind of characters are also are kind of interesting in that they're intended to be positive uh, portrayals. You know, they're kind of the nominal inclusion on, on Hollywood's part to say, Hey, look, there's a black person in here and they're not, you know, a criminal or, you know, a bad guy, that sort of thing. They're, they're good. And, and, and so I think it's, they're an indication that it takes more than just, you know, throwing a black face in there to kind of, have some complete representation. They have to be actually fully formed characters, humans who have stories of their own, and they're not just revolving around the white main character. That That's what's so amazing about the book. It, you can read it as a history of this kind of cinema, but it reads also as a history of representation in popular culture. And in your third chapter, you, you get into horror that has a lot of analysis. And I, I love uh, when you say black horror is our social syllabus. I, for some people, it's music. For some, it's sports. I'm curious about that sentence. And uh, if you could both unpack that a bit, that black horror is your social syllabus. I think what... That was Robin's line. Yeah. <laughs> Very well done. Nice. I think what I was going for there is is one is to give credit to horror because horror is very pedagogical. It's about what we can learn from it. So it's packed with lessons and messages. And that includes when black horror doesn't have so much of a social justice focus. Right. We are making clear that not every black horror movie has to be about, you know, talking back to the the inequities that we're seeing in our in our socio-political world. And that in and itself is also so richly informative when we simply have a black horror movie that is entertaining that um, again, I, I think this is Rachel true who says everybody lives or everybody dies, right? That <laughs> in the right context of U S cinema is a huge, it's a huge statement. It's a huge moment because we've not been always allowed to simply be right. Just be, be entertaining, be funny. It There's so much history that is carried with it. And so what I'm trying to get at is that these discourses are so rich that they deserve conversation 
um, attention, our imagination, and, and to really kind of untangle all of these pieces that we lay out in the book. It is a very funny book, which I didn't expect. And humor, again, is one of the secrets of, of good horror. I mean, I, I will say that's a big difference to me from this book, from Horror Noir, which what made you guys decide that you wanted this to be a funny book rather because you balance the outrage and the history and the humor so beautifully. Well, we wanted it to be an accessible book. You know, like I said, uh, Horror Noir is a little more academic, um, but we wanted this to be kind of something that more the uh, the average person, even if they weren't a fan of horror, uh, could pick up and enjoy. And we know we're talking about heavy topics. You know, no one really wants to talk about race. You know, we I don't even want to talk about race. You know, so we kind of try to do it in a in a fun way. We try to draw people in with the humor and entertainment factor first, you know, and then kind of slip in the messaging underneath. Well, I appreciated that you you talked about our friend uh, Dave Chappelle in the book in that context, because you you mentioned in the book when he stepped away from his Comedy Central show, because he said at the time he felt like white people were laughing at his characters, but for the wrong reasons. And that has certainly been one of the problems in horror throughout the generations. I think that's where um, black horror versus blacks in horror comes into play. That kind of construct that I talked about, you know, Chappelle felt like he didn't know how his audiences were consuming his humor. And I think that is a little bit more riskier in the horror genre when you have black characters who sort of show up, right? Right. Um, Sometimes are parachuted in. Uh, For me, Ma was a film that was a good example of, I wasn't sure how people were going to read or interpret that role by Octavia Spencer. Um, and, and so that's an ensemble cast. It's a diverse cast. She's central. But that's that's not what I would necessarily define as a black horror movie per se. Right. Agreed. That's different than the ways in which we talk about and understand black horror. Black horror writers and directors, producers, I think they're so cognizant of who their target audience is, who who the films are made for, that it relieves them in a sense of this worry, this duality of who's watching and how they're interpreting. And so you'll often see in these black horror movies kind of insider jokes that are represented in our book as well. And if you get it, if you're in, you get it and you we don't have to worry about how is someone else going to take this up because we also know who our primary audience is. Indeed. So I I need to ask, how do you see the genre expanding now post Jordan Peele? He's had such an impact. I mean, just the very fact that the first black screenwriter to win an Oscar did it for a horror film is so revelatory. But his films managed to be so political, so socially relevant and so damn entertaining at the same time. It does seem like we're on the verge of a golden age of a whole different kind of representation in horror. Are you optimistic? I would say I'm cautiously optimistic. <laughs> uh, I mean, Get Out was definitely a game changer as far as black horror goes. I mean, I've, I've been covering my my site has been around since 2005. And in those days, it was really the dregs of, of black horror in terms of everything was just cheap, direct to video, just stuff that is difficult to get through. Um, but, you know, I think his success in terms of not only creatively but also uh financially 
um, I think really has opened the doors for a lot of uh, black horror filmmakers. But I do, I am cautious because, you know, these things are cyclical and we've seen this kind of thing before in, in the black exploitation right. era and then the nineties when, you know, all these black filmmakers got the opportunities and then Hollywood kind of decided, oh, they've had their shot. We'll move on to something else. And they didn't get another shot again after that. So it's been about six years since Get Out. And so we're kind of at a time where Hollywood could decide, you know, we're going to go on another direction now and have something else be the hot thing. So we're really at a critical time now. And I think we just got to have more interesting stories being told by by filmmakers, we got to have the filmmakers be able to be given the opportunity by studios and, and distributors and so forth. So um, hopefully, fingers crossed, we'll, we'll keep it going. <laughs> Dr. Coleman? I'm absolutely optimistic. And th- this is also because you're talking to someone who wrote a book that was called Horror Noir, Blacks in American Horror from like 1890 to present. Mm. For me, that means We're not in a golden age of horror. We have always been horror. I'm really excited about the support and funding that's coming behind Black horror. And a lot of that absolutely has to do with Jordan Peele and how he mainstreamed, right? It's a big deal that a horror film earns an Academy Award, but a Black horror film at that is really exciting. The question is, does it have to be mainstreamed for us to then say we're in a renaissance or a golden age when horror black people in horror films have been around for more than a century. What I do think is important about what Peel has done, what is landmark if we're talking about a century of black people showing up in films is that kind of monkey Paul methodology mm. where there's something about now figuring out the black guy's not going to die first not going to die last, may not die at all. But then there's a genius in the writing and the creativity. How do you build tension? What's what's the story here if you go in knowing the Black people actually might be okay? That's the masterfulness of Peel, that there's still anxiety and nervousness about what's happening here. So you know, the sort of going back to where we started, which is Peel was doing something that horror writers haven't been able to do or willing to do in a long time, which is to do something that's super narrative driven and that's not right. falling back on the cliches and tropes that we lay out in the book. He's disrupted all of that. And it's so much fun. You don't even realize it's deconstructionist. And what I, 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 it's such an honor to have you both. I love this book. I love that it exists. I loved reading your takes on Blackula. And for a book that can cover religion, which we didn't get to talk, I could talk to you about this book for days, LGBTQ issues, but you also cover urban cannibal massacre and honky holocaust. This book is a masterpiece. Uh, Dr. You're going to have to have us come back for Halloween. Listen, I don't want to let's come back before then for, for the paperback that there's so much I want to talk to you about this, especially the depiction of uh, of black religion, which for so long has just been voodoo for a white audience. And you just do such a public service and such a great service to great movies with this book. Dr. Robin Armines Coleman and Mark Harris are the co-authors. The book is The Black Guy Dies First, Black Horror Cinema from Fodder to Oscar. It's not just a book you're going to want to buy for yourself. You're going to want to buy copies of this to give as gifts. It is that special. Splendid. Thank you both so much. We'd love to have you back anytime. It's really a pleasure. Thank you, John. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. We'll be right back. 
I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. On Sunday, the Philadelphia Eagles will play the Kansas City Chiefs for the NFL championship. And again, the Chiefs faithful will watch the team's players trundle out the fake Indian drum and bang it on the end zone as if they're off to a war party. Fans will don more faux feather headdresses and paint their faces red as they do more pregame partying outside Arizona State Farm Stadium. All the while, the racism and discrimination against indigenous peoples in these United States will be passively encouraged as an outburst of good old team spirit on the national stage. So writes the great Simon Moya Smith in a new piece for the nation, the fight to defeat the name of the Kansas City Chiefs. Simon is, of course, an Oglala Lakota and Chicano journalist. He's a contributing writer at NBC News. You can read his stuff on issues at the intersection of heritage and modern politics. He's the author of the book, Your Spirit Animal is a Jackass. He recently profiled actress Paulina Alexis of the breakout Peabody Award-winning FX series Reservation Dogs for the Cut. We are always happy to welcome Simon Moya-Smith back on the air. Simon, good to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. You know, every time it seems like we're beginning to make some progress with these sports teams, they got rid of the offensive name of the the Washington team. They've they've they're changing the name of the team in Cleveland. But boy, it, it's not even the name of the team so much, is it? It's all the attendant minstrel show behavior that happens along with this team name. Oh yeah, the 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 chants, the tomahawk chop, that massive fake drum that they you know they bang. Um, you know, people wearing headdresses, they still do that at the tailgate, even though you, they, uh, the team banned it from people wearing it inside the stadium. You'll still see them at the tailgate. They'll wear them every, everywhere. It's cultural appropriation, but it's also, you know, again, it's, it's, it's offensive because it enables racism. And then this is one of the last forms of racism that everybody gets behind. You'll, you'll see yeah. black uh, Latinos, you'll see Asians, you know, women, LGBTQ people supporting the team. And only when you approach them and say, look, this is why this is racist. So they go, oh, and it starts to make sense. Exactly. But I, I think, yeah, everybody's been conditioned not to see racism against indigenous people. Well, to me, it's like it's it's exactly like the um, the, the Confederate flag. It is a sign yeah. to the rest of the world and to historians that a lot of people in our culture refuse to take our own history of ethnic cleansing seriously. It's still yeah. just a joke. But what what really struck me about the piece, um, and besides the fact that I love your writing, but here's something I didn't know that you wrote about. Psychologists have long called for the abolition of all Indian mascotry. I mean, I can mm-hmm. I can see why, but there it, it really, really is bad 
for the emotional and physical well-being of children and their families. Yeah, and then that was in 2005, so a long time ago. They called for the immediate abolishment of, of Native mascots because it, it was proven to harm the mental health and stability of children, and not just Native children, but all children. And so, but that's gone ignored. So people still think it's an opinion thing. And I'm like, no, it's not. You have psychologists that are calling the, the American Psychological Association saying you need to stop doing that. It's harming the kids. So when people say to us, well, don't you have bigger issues in Indian country, you know, on reservations? Oh, yeah. Like, well, wait on a minute. This is harming the mental health and stability of our kids. What's more important than taking care of our kids? But that's the so, argument, isn't it, Simon? I mean, what I always got, what I, what white people always told me when defending the name Redskins, literally, the team named not after indigenous people, but after a slur on their pigment. And I always heard the same thing. And it was always from Caucasians. Indians don't mind it. There's lots of Native Americans who don't mind the name Redskins. It's just you white liberals care about it. And it's like the moral deniability, you know, the plausible deniability of the morality of what they're doing. They need to cling to the notion that somewhere there's an indigenous person who's got bigger things on their mind, and that makes their bigotry okay. Yeah, it's the same bullshit argument every new generation. You know, it's, it's again, it's just because somebody approves of a racial slur doesn't make it any less of a racial slur. Just because right. somebody approves of something that's offensive or racist doesn't make it any less offensive or racist. Again, this isn't a this isn't a opinion thing. There's a dictionary to find racial slur, and we finally got that changed. The American Psychological Association said that the these images and this language harms the mental health and stability of children. So why hasn't it changed? Well, because it's a sports god. You know, people uh, you know, Sundays it's church and football. And you can't say word one against their team. You can't say one word against it because it's like you're saying something against their God. I know. I know. Uh, Simon, how relevant was it two years ago when Colorado Governor Polis signed uh, the Senate bill banning the use of Native Americans as mascots in the state? Oh, people went nuts, especially over there in Lamar, uh, Colorado, because they were the Lamar savages and they would have the image of an indigenous person. And so they bullshitted themselves so deeply that they're like, no, 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 we're not talking about Native Americans. I am a savage. My kid is a savage. And I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You have the logo, an image of an indigenous person. And you're saying that it has nothing to do with us. And they're like, yep, nothing to do with you. But of course, the Jared Bullis stepped in. And now you can't have any of those mascots in the state of Colorado. But that's just Colorado. I mean, you can go all over the country and see people still, you know, wearing headdresses and painting their faces for, you know, a high school football game because they're the Warriors or they're the Indians, they're the Chiefs, something like that. So it's still an issue across the country. Colorado kind of led the way, but it still, it dawns on you how much bullshit these people can mire themselves in and lies about what a word means and what those logos mean to indigenous people. Absolutely. You talked to one activist who I thought nailed it brilliantly by saying, you know, I mean, it, it seems like it's a, a capitalist issue. The NFL is a billion dollar industry and they use us, our image, solely for profit. You know, that's mm -hmm. the thing, right? Like they, they'll use these outdated tropey images to try to brand their game or their products. But First Nations people aren't seeing a dime from all this. No, not at all. I mean, it, it's funny, you know, then that's Amanda Blackhorse and, and Ali Young. It needs mm -hmm. to be noted that, that on Sunday, the protest, the march and rally is hel helmed by indigenous women. 
and and that's kind of how we've been doing things since time immemorial. Women really led the way. And so the idea that they're making all of this money off of our image, it's something that they, they, they pride themselves on. But as soon as we walk in the room and say, hey, you know, that's offensive, then they just kind of shut down, right? Yeah. And they, they continue to deal in this dehumanization, this commodification of a race of people. And they just turn their cheek. They go, well, nothing's happening. The same thing with the Washington football team. They changed their name, and not once did they go, well, sorry for all those years that we kind of fucked you guys over with this. And it's it's going to be the same thing. It's only a matter of time. The Chiefs will change their name. The Blackhawks are going to have to change their name. It's only a matter of time. It's just going to take another generation of people coming in and conscientiously objecting to it. I'm with you. I mean, you know, look, I grew up around white kids and I remember watching, I think it was the Braves mascot was called Chief Nakahoma in the 80s. And I just, I mean, I remember my father being so embarrassed. And then I remember other white people just saying it's not a big deal. And I got to ask, Simon, what do, what do you say to these Caucasians who will come out and say, look, I get it. Redskins is offensive and, and uh, Indians. OK, that's offensive. But but Braves, Chiefs, these are just names denoting warriors or leaders. There's, there's nothing derogatory there. What is your response? Because I hear this argument all the time. Yeah, it's bullshit. It's a, it's a weak <laughs> argument that we've heard for de- our elders have heard, you know, and the idea that they can just say it's just a word. But no, it's everything that goes around it. It's everything that happens with it. The dehumanization, the, the racism, the enabling of racism and making us a caricature again. We're still trying to get the United States and everybody to see us as humans and that we're still here. People mm-hmm. don't even know how to refer to us yet. They'll say, you know, do we call you American Indian, Native American? What do we call you? People don't even know how to what to reference, how to reference us, let alone honor. They don't know. They keep saying that. It's like, oh, this is honoring you. The word brave, the word chief. We're just no, it's not. Just stop. It's not. You don't know how no. to honor us yet. I agree. I mean, it's 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 not just cultural appropriation. It's cultural appropriation to render the culture a cartoon. Yep. Yeah. It's like we're a plaything. And that's the thing. You know, and when you see somebody I'm here, I'm here in Santa Fe, New Mexico right now. And, you know, I was wearing my hat that says you're on native land and you know, my partner comes in, she's got her braids, and this guy's bedecked out. It was like last Sunday, or the last game that the Chiefs played, and he was all in Chiefs gear, and he just like looked at my hat and scowled at me, looked at her and scowled. And They're not here to honor us. What they're doing is they're honoring a brand. They're honoring their, their team. But when it actual indigenous people show up and say, that's really fucked up what you're doing, they'll just turn around, nope, nope, no, it's not. Nope, because again, it's just that, that, weird sports fanaticism and it, it you see it everywhere it and even when it comes to local sports people say the same thing about their mascot whether it's a warrior no a warrior no that see we're honoring you like no you're I not know. you have a dipshit and a headdress and face paint <laughs> running across the fucking field that's not honoring us that's mocking us that's There's playing got- indian are, are, are there forces in the NFL that are awake to this? I mean, in, in post-Kaepernick NFL, I, I want to believe that there are people either on the players level or the corporate level or even the broadcasters level who will shine a light on this and, and be able to actually educate the well-intentioned viewers of these games as to what they're partaking in. Mm-mm. Nobody. Nobody. There's Nobody. not one. Nothing. It's a business. You know, a player doesn't want to lose their, their job and coaches and, you know, broad, nobody wants to lose their job. 
And nobody's standing up and saying, hey, you know what? This is pretty bad against Indigenous people who are the smallest racial minority in the United States. Uh, Indigenous women are 2.5 times more likely to be sexually assaulted than women of any other demographic. All of these things that impact our communities aren't discussed. Because, again, it's one of those things. You can't be the greatest nation in the world if you're guilty of a genocide. You can't be the greatest nation in the world if you're treating the first people in this manner, let alone mm. the things that happen you know, outside of sports like oil and gas and man camps. Nobody talks about it. That's Again, right. when it comes to racism, we have to teach all Americans what it is to be racist against natives. Because remember, we still live at a time where every November at some elementary school, they have a Thanksgiving play and they're dressing their kid up as an Indian. I know. They learn that early on in life. That's I one know. of the first lessons American kids learn is that it's okay to play Indian. You can dress yeah. up as, as an Indian. That's one of the first lessons they get. And so yeah. when they go to these games and they're dressed up as Indians, they're like, I've been doing it since I was a kid. What's the big problem? I know. I know. We're still trying to teach people that blackface is wrong. Simon, right? this is the part in the conversation where I ask you the same question I, I always ask when you come on. Um, and I will always ask you this question for our listeners. How can people who care, who are outraged by this, how can, how can you know, folks of all backgrounds who want to be allies, how can they help? How can they get involved? I mean, really, it's, it's all about speaking up because, again, you know, there's not a lot of us. Again, being the smallest racial minority in the United States, in, in our ancestral land, we're not going to be in all these environments. So we need allies. We need people that are going to say something at, at a game or uh, somebody's house if they're watching it or at a tailgate and say, you know, that's wrong. You should probably take that headdress off or you should probably shouldn't paint your face red. That's really racist. So we need people to be our allies. We need them to speak in support of indigenous people and against this form of racism that, again, will only continue if we don't have people there in those spaces uh, defending the indigenous people, our cultures, our spiritualities. But you never, I mean, it's again, it's sports. People don't want to be a party pooper. They're like, gee, that's why I'm not allowed invited to a lot of these, these spaces. Because like Simon's going to come and he's going to say some shit. Yeah, and yeah. we need people to speak up. Good for you for doing the Lord's work. Uh, Simon, <laughs> I'm so glad you joined us. It was so last minute, but I really wanted to have you on before the Super Bowl happened. What is the best way for our listeners to follow you and keep up with your work? Yeah, just Instagram and uh, Twitter. On Twitter, it's at Simon Moya Smith. Instagram is Simon said, take a pic. I really hope people will share the story that I wrote and uh, you know pay attention you know, to the hashtags that are going to be happening on Sunday. Absolutely. Hey, thank you so much. Again, the peace in the nation is the fight to defeat the name of the Kansas City Chiefs. Simon, please come back and see us again really soon. It's always a pleasure and an honor to have you. Thank you. Always.